So arrived at uh, 1 a.m. in the morning. Uh, <laughs> and, got, and allergies are affecting you. Got smashed with allergies. Yep. Uh, just worked my way through uh, half of a cup of coffee. Nice. And um, haven't had breakfast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Another Bottle Down. This is a radio show about wine in the wine industry. My name is Mark Rayshap, and I interview winemakers uh, or all kinds of wine personalities who have something unique to say in the world of wine. Uh, I hope that you have enjoyed previous conversations and you continue to listen. I really appreciate it. Um, we podcast this. You can get the podcast on uh, I, the iTunes store or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Please leave a good rating if, if you like the show and a comment that really helps get the word out and uh, allows other people to find the podcast as well. So I really appreciate that. On today's show, we have a very special conversation. I learned a ton. Chad Stock is my guest. He is a winemaker in the Willamette Valley. He's relatively new, relatively young winemaker. He started making wine there in 2011, if I, if I get that correctly. And uh, he's often lumped in the natural wine movement, which is not necessarily fair because he... he um, he doesn't always uh, pertain to the staunch beliefs as other natural winemakers. And we have this conversation, we have this discussion, and and get into a little bit. A lot of his wines don't have sulfur. All of his wines are native uh, yeast fermentations. That is one, some th- one thing that he does believe very strongly in. But uh, he is one of the people who has brought in a lot of different grape varieties to Oregon, which is very fascinating. He uh, has been the first winemaker to make a lot of alternative grape varieties. Um, his Grunerveltliner uh, that I tasted yesterday was was just dynamite, unbelievable texture. Uh, and he's doing a lot of firsts with Chenin Blanc, with, um, with Sauvignon, with uh, Kerner. So um, his perspective and how he's bringing in new varieties, I think, is very applicable to so many, uh, so many people, no matter what sector you are in, in our wine community. So um, I know that you're going to really enjoy this interview. Um, and, and we even talk about how he has had some success in actually aging uh, some wine under floor, which is that layer of yeast that uh, you will find in sherry or in the Jura uh, with Van Jones, etc. So fascinating stuff. Um, quick plug, I'm doing a South Australia class at the Wine and Food Foundation on April 25th, a 4 p.m. seating and a 6 p.m. seating. I was just recently in Australia and had a lot of my impressions just turned upside down on their head. And so we're going to taste a lot of funky stuff. South Australia is so much more diverse than just your your Shirazes and Cabs. So we're going to really delve into uh, a lot of the, the real cutting-edge stuff that is being talked about right now in today's wine world in, uh, in the Barossa, the McLaren Vale, Kunawara, um, the Adelaide Hills, so a wide spectrum of wines. Winefoodfoundation.org for more information on that. And uh, for more information on Chad Stock and his craft wine company, craftwineco.com. Please do enjoy this. Chad, it's a pleasure to have you in the co-op studios. Um, you are the winemaker and owner of the Craft Wine Company, right? Welcome. To- Thank you. Yeah, co-owner of Craft Wine Company. I have a couple of partners. And I'd like to start off this interview. So you're based in Oregon, and you're really pushing the bar on a lot of topics and things that are going on and, and leading the industry in a lot of ways. I'd like uh, you to give just us a rundown of Oregon, um, what, what it means to you, what's going on there, and, uh, and, and we'll go from there. It's a big topic to start with. but <laughs> Yeah, it's a monster question. Um, <laughs> I think the most important thing that I can say from where I come from is that I moved to Oregon because I wanted to live in Oregon. It's a beautiful place. It's arguably the last sort of temperate rainforest that there is. And I think that is potentially the most exciting place to make wine right now for colder climate varietals. Yeah. And uh, I moved there just because I love the place. It's just beautiful. I'm an outdoorsman. Uh, I love more of the rural lifestyle, right? It's not a heavily populated state. You're close to the ocean. You have the mountains. You have rivers. 
the uh, culture there is incredibly resourceful. People are more interested in the quality of their life than what they than what they acquire, yeah. which for me is just uh, that's, that's, brilliant and quite rare. Yeah, and and it's just it's just a humble, lovely place. And there was a wine industry there, and the wine industry is very young. And as a young person coming out of university and green and you know, not knowing exactly where I wanted to make wine. I, I didn't come out of university saying I want to make Cabernet Sauvignon. I just wanted to make wine. I moved to Oregon because that was the most beautiful place that I felt like I could move to in the U.S. Right. And there was a small wine industry there. Did so, you always know that you wanted to do wine? Not always, no. I mean, it wasn't until my late teens, which was still really, really early. Right. And I just, I didn't drink wine and I didn't drink alcohol. I couldn't stand, I, or excuse me, I, I wasn't really drinking much of anything, but I couldn't drink beer for sure or alcohol. Beer was way too bitter. I didn't get it at all. It was just totally over my head. It was it was not pleasant for me right. and wasn't really into alcohol. And I was also quite a bit of an athlete when I was younger too. And so it just wasn't really much of my life until I got into my uh, later teens, early 20s, started working in restaurants and things, finding ways to pay for college and uh, figuring out what I wanted to do. So I started drinking wine because I liked wine. And at the time, it was things that were like more fruity and more obvious and easy white wines to drink. And oddly, uh, I liked it enough that I started purchasing books like Kevin Zarelli's Windows on the World, for example, right. was one of my first books that I had ever purchased. And so I took it upon myself to want to, to, to learn more, to know more about wine. And that just led to more books and more reading and more tasting and trying things. And before I knew it, I was looking into university for winemaking when I found out that enology was a course of study. Right. You can do which that. Which totally blew my mind. <laughs> right. Yeah, I thought, oh my God, you can go to college for this? And uh, I'm a bit of a science nerd. Yeah. And so when I looked at the curriculum, I thought, wow, this is, this is cool. Super broad, right? Physics, um, chemistry, crazy amounts of chemistry, botany, plant physiology, really dynamic science degree. So I, uh, I jumped in and I guess I just never never looked back. Yeah. Amazing. And and then you found that there was this young industry in Oregon. And what made you want to start to uh, plant different varieties, kind of push the bar on winemaking? Do, um, you know, we'll be talking over this time about natural winemaking, wines without sulfur, but you don't abide by one philosophy, maybe, or maybe you do, um, but you don't adhere to kind of one standard dogma, uh, if we can say, uh, because it's all about taste for you. Was yeah, I definitely work. I definitely work off taste. That's the most important thing for me. It's a pursuit of flavor. Um, as 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 anyone learns about something, right, in an intense way, where you become right. a you know you become a professional at what you do. <clears throat> there are a couple of different ways that you can take that. You can become a master of something. Right, you can say, okay, I'm going to be char I'm going to be all in on Chardonnay. That is what I love the most, and that's what I'm going to make. And you can spend your life trying to master Chardonnay. And there are people that are doing that. Right. And there are people that are doing that on Pinot Noir as well. My progression of learning and falling in love with wine was vast. It wasn't specific. Right. And because it was vast, I was drinking globally. I was traveling globally. And I was studying all these regions outside of where I live because if I'm going to make wine nine to five, which is way worse than that, right? <laughs> it's a lot of work. But if I'm making wine nine to five in Oregon, when I'm not working in Oregon, why would I be still studying Oregon outside of my nine to five? Like, I don't want to burn out my day job, right? right. So to keep things interesting, right? And to keep growing, especially at the time, because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do in wine. I knew I wanted to make wine. It just was like this endless consumption of knowledge. Right. And I grew up in an era of the internet, right? Which our founders didn't have. And the finger, you know, the knowledge is right at my fingertips. I can access anything I want anytime. Yeah. It's, it's just crazy. And so that was just my natural direction of how I took things. And I still do that. I still work that way, think that way. I make wine that way. And uh, I'm still just getting started. What, was, what were some of your first inspiration moments? If you can bring us back to, to those those landmark experiences that, that you know you geeked out and were searching the web and uh, learning all about the Jura or something as an example, maybe it was that. <laughs> well, one thing I've found consistent is that when I find a wine that I don't know much about, <clears throat> for example, maybe it was my first bottle of uh, you know the first the first bottle of Jura Rouge that I ever had was uh, the Vieux Vin Jacques Puffini. Uh, which is a combination of Pinot Noir, Trousseau Noir, and Plossard, and maybe some other things I, c I can't remember. But uh, incredible wine. It blew my my mind, you know? And so it always started with taste. It was always it was always this experience where, okay, I love this thing. What is this? I right. need to know. Yeah. Because all week long I've been drinking 
stuff from all over the place. And as, as good as some of these wines may have been, they didn't really capture my imagination or sort of kick me into overdrive to have to know what is going on right with this wine. And so there are definitely wines that I've had, and I've had wines from many, many regions that have done this. And then I just sort of dive in and I learn more about them. And I started to see consistencies in philosophy, which then really guided a lot of my my own personal philosophical take on wine, noting how the wines that I love the most were consistently made with a, a sort of a similar core philosophy, which is organic or biodynamic farming, minimal processing, native fermentations in particular, uh, were incredibly important. And so I started just to integrate that into my work and apprentice with people who were doing that in the United States and at a really, really high level too, to make sure that I, I had a good foundation of knowledge and really good core, uh, technique and and structure in the cellar and in the farm. So, so those just to, just to recap that. So biodynamic and organic farming, native ferments. I mean, these, these are kind of are these big things. Is there anything else? Um, well, I mean, there are a lot of things, you know, there's the idea of the varietal wine, which is insane. Like it's totally insanity. Like, yeah. I, you know, I think about, I think about how in some specific parts of the world, a single grape variety in the most perfect place on the most perfect soil on the right hands becomes the most pure expression of Cabernet Franc yeah. or the most pure expression of Nerorella Mascalese or whatever you're going to, you know, whatever you're going to talk about. But I think in many regions, in many, many regions, the best wines or some of the best approach to making wine uh, can be a multi multi-grape Right. So sometimes a lot of the wines that I like are co-fermentations or field blends of lots of different grape varieties, like the dice wines, for example, from Alsace. And so there are a lot of things. I just feel like from a core philosophy standpoint, um, farming organic and BD, uh, if possible. And native ferments are huge for me. Um, That's one of the things that I'm dogmatic on, actually, is uh, is only using native yeast fermentation. Um, I think that there's much more depth that comes from it. And I don't necessarily want to go down the terroir road because I, I don't really, that's not really a concept that I like to talk about very much. Um, it's too big of an idea. And I think like it's more fun to talk about kind of the, like sort of the integral components. Yes. Um, individually, it makes it easier for us to wrap our brains around, but there's just way more complexity and depth from native yeast ferments. So there's that no filtration, obviously, of course, and no additives either. So I don't really like to use any kind of fining agents. I don't want to remove anything. And I'm also not interested in adding anything as well in the process of making the wine, unless it's absolutely necessary, which which I'm totally fine with. And that's also why I'm not a staunch naturalist winemaker. Right. Is because sometimes you need to do something. And if you need to intervene, you should. It's a process of nature that we have to work with. And letting it rip is insane, yeah. I think. And being heavy-handed is also totally Madness. So you feel though that there is some that there are some people who who are natural wine producers just to be that without uh, maybe knowing the science behind it or or uh, when when it when it's necessary actually adding something. I'm sure that that exists. I I don't want to say that I've experienced that because right. I I I don't have enough knowledge. I've definitely tasted a range of good quality and bad quality wine, uh, and I myself have had some wines that didn't work out. Um, and so it, it, there really, for me, would be no way to sort of really answer that question specifically. Yeah. Um, I do think that you, no matter how you make wine, it doesn't matter if you're conventional or not, you have to work at a very high level. And if you're not working with an insane amount of intent, what's the fucking point? Right. You know what I mean? Like it, it we make mistakes and so things will happen and sometimes you'll have off bottles, you know, but I mean, if you're not working with intent, I think that's the most important thing. So I, I'd, I'd rather, you know, for me, I, I focus on that a bit more. Um, and then we work on our skill set every year and get better and raise the bar. Yeah. We'll delve into some of those as we as we talk more about the wines. Um, but I'd like to delve into Oregon and the whole context there, because you have some grape varieties planted that, that nobody else does. And uh, lead us down kind of your path in, in the vineyard side of things. And because uh, you're doing a lot of exciting things there. So lead us down that path. Maybe what the context of Oregon wine was like before you started doing this. And then your thought process behind really, really uh, wanting other varieties and, and pushing that bar. So Oregon is now just slightly over 50 years. If you look at the modern industry, there was a uh, flourishing industry, just like in California before Prohibition. Uh, and Prohibition squashed the Oregon wine industry, similarly to California. Right. And um, so there were lots of odd varieties that were planted back 
you know, back uh, a long time ago, let's say in the early, you know, early uh, 20th century. And so in 1960s, to be specific, 1965-ish, 1966, it's debatable, um, the first two vineyards really were planted in the Willamette Valley. And both vineyards uh, planted kind of a more of a shotgun effect. You know, they had multiple varieties that they planted. And even if uh, they had independently of one another some different ideas of what they thought they wanted to champion, they still backed up those with other things that might work because, you know, we don't we didn't really, really know at the time. And so um, so we started off with not only those vineyards, but many vineyards to follow through the rest of the 60s and through 1970s, where there was Riesling and a lot of different aromatic white grape varieties that were planted that people don't talk about, which is crazy. Um, and it wasn't really until uh, the 1970s, I want to say it was, I don't remember what year it happened, but say 76 or some, somewhere around that time frame, that Pinot Noir really hit big in a couple of major competitions in Europe and kind of a similar story you know, like in California that really launched Pinot Noir in the spotlight. Yeah. So for the last 50 years plus now, we've for the most part had all the modern plantings that have been done since then shrink the amount of grape varieties they plant. In many cases, people were still planting a couple of things, you know, either have some fun with something or just to, just to have a mix, but it was pretty much all Pinot Noir dominated. So we've spent the last 50 years really trying to master that grape variety. Yeah. And you do, and, and you love Pinot and you make Pinot and, and uh, it's not that you want to completely go uh, uh, the other way and, and do only oddball varieties, right? Yeah, uh, correct. I mean, I love Pinot Noir. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and we do it incredibly well. Yeah. Uh, Oregon Pinot Noir is a, is a, is a world contender. It's tough to beat in yeah. my opinion. But um, there's also a lot else that we can do. Sure. And in the effort to try to make sure that we don't have the same problem that Napa uh, now has, or Pinot Noir in Russian River Valley is also a huge uh, concern, which is that those regions have established themselves on a single grape variety so powerfully, and those wines have become so iconic, and the price of them is high, that with the value of land rising following suit, Right. The only thing that they can now plant is that exact grape variety and they've pigeonholed themselves and now there's no room for creativity unless you have private wealth essentially that is going to fund that because corporations won't, right? Right. The constellation brands of the world that are going to buy up, you know, prominent wineries or whatever uh, to turn them for a profit are not going to they're not going to plant Schiappatino. And then and it's say, a Let's snowball. Let's see what that does in Russian River Valley. Right. And then it's a snowball effect and, and then you're trapped. Yeah. So in the Willamette Valley right now, we have this situation where we've done Pinot Noir incredibly well. Uh, there is a bit of a discussion that Oregon equals Pinot Noir for the folks that know that Oregon even makes wine, right. um, which is another interesting story. Um, we are still so young at what we do and there's still so much land tons and tons of unplanted land and it's so reasonably affordable by comparison to all other American wine regions for the most part, at least West coast based that, um, that there's still a ton of opportunity to be able to change that story right. and talk about how Oregon is the most amazing place. In my opinion, the most amazing place to be making wine in the United States and that it's about that place, not about a single grape. And so the more we try to push the region into one single grape variety, I think that that's, I think that's, I think that's, not only super boring, right. um, it's not timeless. Right. It, it will fail. Yeah. The system will fail. And so we need to be diverse. And, um, and so that's what led me to not only still continue to try to help raise the bar on Pinot Noir and make great Pinot Noir, but to figure out the vineyard sites and combinations of elevation, soil type, and different things like that within the Willamette Valley. Um, other things where on that particular piece of land, Pinot Noir is just sort of okay. So if it's just okay, then what should we grow maybe on that particular vineyard that might be great? Yeah. And so that's really what it's about. It's more like, well, we're identifying the sites that are really amazing. And then there are sites that we are sort of struggling with to get quality. So what else should we maybe put there, right? Um, and then figure out how to strategically diversify and keep the quality level that people expect from Oregon Pinot Noir to be the same from Oregon Chardonnay or Oregon Cab Franc yeah. or Oregon Trousseau or Oregon Chenin, 
Blanc, for example, yeah. to keep the same quality discussion. Right. right. And then, and, and that are other producers very much like-minded in that sense that, that there's a fear to be this mono culture, mono varietal of a uh, variety of Pinot Noir. And, um, and, and are, do you have colleagues that are, that are kind of uh, creating this community that, that Oregon might also be known for a place of diversity and experimentation and, and that sort of thing? Is that, is there community there? Uh, there definitely is. And it's not just amongst producers that are newer to the region or younger in age or whatnot that are bringing newer, fresh ideas. <clears throat> There's also, you know, some of the pioneers themselves uh, are also continuing to evolve their own story. So you have you have a population of people both new and established and it's growing and it's growing exponentially. Yeah. Uh, one example, actually, that uh, I think is interesting is the planting of Aligote which uh, I was the first person to plant basically in 2015. And considering the Burgundian narrative that the region has worked off of, it's kind of crazy that in a 50-year time frame, nobody actually attempted Aligote, right. other than it would be tough to sell and like there was probably good sound business reason to maybe you know, consider it to be risky. Um, in just two years' time frame now, there are, that I counted yesterday, there are now eight. And I bet you that eight will be 20 yeah. by 2020. Wow. So, you know, certain things are really catching on. Gamay Noir is really, is really booming. That's kind of the next red grape variety I think we're going to see a big push on. And that makes sense, too, given the, 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 pro- proximate, right, the Burgundian narrative. Can you lead us through the process that, that you've kind of gone through to, to planting new varieties? And, and as you said, uh, Aligote is, is an example of what you did, uh, Chenin Blanc uh, even as well. And uh, there's a lot of challenges to, to uh, Sevignin is another example example of what we were talking about before the show. Uh, what is that, that process and, and its difficulties? And uh, yeah, lead us through it. Well, to start, you have to do sound research, right? You don't want to just do this on a whim. Uh, you need to drink wines from different regions that have parallels to our climate or soil. Ideally, both yeah. would be nice. Right. Um, <laughs> and you also need to understand the marketplace Right? You need to see what, what, what is wanted, what does the market desire, not just from a consumer level, but what are buyers interested in that they want that they could then use to you know, educate their, their customers and things like that. So you have to understand the complexities of those things to some degree. And then you need to drink a lot of the wines from those regions and you need to understand the style parameters and whether or not you yourself are interested in growing the grape regardless of what it expresses or you're interested in growing the grape because you're going to try to force it into some style that you want it to be. So you need to be, you need to understand yourself and you need to check yourself and you need to be super objective. And then when you kind of go through a lot of those things and you say, okay, I want to plant some grape variety, right? Cause you've arrived at some healthy mental state and you're going to just give this a go. Um, there are a couple of different ways to do that. You can either find grape material, that is quarantined and is available in the United States through foundation plant services, for example, where you can find um, safe tested material that you could then develop your own vines from. So you can collect budwood, pay the foundation a fee to collect material and start building your own vines. Uh, You can go through a professional nursery who has a couple of different, who would have a couple of different options. If it is something that is uh, in somewhat of a demand already, they would have a, uh, they would have a, a resource planting essentially where they would be able to collect material from and a much larger scale so that you can get a much larger selection of vines if you wanted to. Um, You can quarantine your own. So through FPS, you can privately fund and you can privately fund for either proprietary material or for public record. And there are different prices of what it costs you to do that. So if you are a fan of a particular grape variety that is currently not available in the United States and you want to go through the correct uh, loopholes to, to get it here, right, and do everything legally and on the up and up, um, it's not very expensive. It's just time consuming. Right. So it could take three to five years to basically get your first vines from some grape variety, which I've been doing on a small scale. I've done that with a few things. And I would encourage... Uh, I would encourage a lot of people actually to dive in in a major way to start doing that. I think that that's a very smart long-term and short-term investment. Do you feel like you understand what's going on in the vineyard better when you've when you've when you've done that, or is it just about the the diversity and 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 also the investment of it? I think I think in a young region like where I'm based, the more grapes that you grow to some degree, 
on a single plot of land, the faster you will understand that plot of land, opposed to growing one grape variety and then trying to understand how that translates to that one single lens. Yeah. And, um, and so for me, with the primary farm, Omero, that I manage, it is uh, 27. There are 27 grape varieties planted there on 26 acres. And so it's a bit of like a research station in yeah, a way. Right. And the things that I have seen across the board on, on these different grapes has been really astonishing. And there are certain things that are consistent. And it won't matter if it's white grape or red grape um, or country of origin. There are certain characteristics that the soil profile from that vineyard implement into each of the varieties no matter what it is and so you can very clearly see okay this is not just this grape variety you know on this soil that's doing this everything's tannic right so the marine sedimentary soils that we have create very thick skinned fruit so you tend to have a lot of tannin and very structured wines from the from the ribbon ridge appellation which is which is really amazing for some things and not for others because maybe you don't want that in Trousseau or Pinot Noir, right. right? Maybe you want something more pretty, and so maybe you would be better off on basalt, right? I mean, it just depends on what your what your taste preference is. Yeah. So I feel like planting all the things that I have planted uh, have really actually helped me understand the region much better, and for sure the vineyards that I farm, um, I have a much better feeling of of what to do and how to how to work with right. the sites. So give us a, a snapshot of so you farm Omero is is the vineyard that you farm. You uh, you do some contract work as well. Give us a, a broad spectrum and then do you buy some fruit as well, uh, depending on if the grower has a like minded uh, philosophy, et cetera. Yeah, you know, you just you can't grow everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'm not a good example for people to follow because uh, I'm obsessed. I mean, I'm totally fucking obsessed. Like, I love wine, and I just want to know everything about it. And I'm going to try. I'm going to try everything that's within reason, right? Within like good foundational like principles of why that should potentially do well from our region. And so I'm going to try everything I possibly can. Um, what that means is that you know I can only plant so much land, right. and if somebody else has a different soil profile or they're in a different part of the region where the climate's different. Maybe they're closer to the Vendizer Corridor, so you have more oceanic ef- effect. Maybe you're in Ribbon Ridge or further north in Shailen Mountains where there's you know more weather protection. Um, I'm still going to want to see the same grape variety, even if I grow it, on somebody else's property so that I can study that and so that my peers in the area who might also want to follow suit and have interest in something that I'm growing, I can show them two or three examples right, from different vineyard sites. So... I guess for me, the greatest pursuit, like it's, it's only sort of on the ground level discussion that we talk about these grapes and we talk about that. I think the real big picture is that I am trying to catalog as much information for my region as possible. So as a little bit, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're using the whole region as a canvas too. I mean, you think of that and that's how you think about it. Yeah. So that basically means that I'm going to grow a significant portion of, of my own fruit. And then I'm also going to buy a portion as well. And I think that, uh, I mean, it would be a beautiful idea someday for me to have enough resources to just plant vineyards all over the place and have it all be 100% estate. I don't know how realistic that is, but it also doesn't sound super interesting because I kind of want to work with other farmers, right? Because they're going to think they're going to think about things a bit differently. Yeah. And I want I'm always going to want to have a portion of my winemaking and a portion of my, you know, distribution and importing, for example, and a portion of my farming and things like that. Like the relationships that are there are incredibly vital to the foundation of what I do and the foundation of pursuing the information that I'm trying to collect for my region. And so what that means is that uh, I need lots of people in on this conversation that are all in for the same reason so that we can all sort of be like much more powerful than than, than just me like being a hermit on a hill growing my own fruit. Right. So so you're open enough to to have your impressions challenged and to get feedback from other people and what in in their craft and their specialty. Yeah. I mean, not only am I open to it, I can I can prove that that's the case. I mean, I'm being challenged constantly. Yeah. You know, I'm the most prolific winemaker in my region. And the majority of what I do is the first time it's ever been done. And there's a combination of like really good sound, inquisitive, you know, pushback in a way that's that's. Right, that, that that people want, like people want to know, and then there's obviously two people that are just whatever turned off by the idea, or people that just don't, you know, people who don't necessarily think similarly because they're the Chardonnay master, right, right? and that's what they want to do, and so it's hard for them to have the range that I have, yeah, um, and don't appreciate things, and so you have like sort of all of that happening, of course, which is just nature. I mean, it's just the natural balance of things. Um, but uh, but it's all good. Yeah, like I don't like the criticism is great. 
like bring it right. fine right mm-hmm. and i'm happy to admit like if i feel like yeah like that was my first attempt like i'll raise the bar like you know can you contribute some ideas on how we can do that right and so i'm always trying to like push back with positive you know with sort of positive uh uh you know positive questions and trying to keep things productive because that's really the, the key the yeah. real the real key point yeah is to keep moving forward Hey, Chad, let's take a short break. Um, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Chad Stock, who is a partner and winemaker of the Craft Wine Company. Their labels uh, are include Minimus, Origin, and Omero. And of course, we're talking about the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Uh, we'll be right back after this break. This is another Bottle Down. My name is Mark Rayshap. We're talking with Chad Stock of the craft wine company and with uh, labels ranging Minimus, Origin, and Omero. Um, real honor to have Chad in the co-op studios here. Um, we, Chad, we've, uh, in the first segment, we, we touched on some, uh, some of the grape varieties, some of the things that you've done. I'd like to elaborate a little bit, a little bit further. Um, I think that there's room to do that. Um, and, and, you know, you had mentioned Aligote, you had mentioned Sauvignon, Chenin Blanc. Um, maybe let's just run through some of the most successful ones, some of the, the, the ones that you're super pumped about and, and have, think have a really bright future. Um, <clears throat> well, let's, uh, let's start with Chenin Blanc because I think Chenin Blanc is interesting for a number of reasons. Um. So we obviously work in a very marginal climate. So the Willamette Valley is, is, is especially with climate change and things that are happening, uh, whatever's going on with that, it's caused even more erratic behavior in the weather patterns that are there. And so what that means is the consistency is tough, you know, because in some of the regions in California to the south or Washington to the north, it's, it's quite sunny and warm. Right. And if you're a, a winemaker who, uh, or grower who picks your fruit on the earlier side to make more acid and lower alcohol balanced wines, in many vintages you're you're totally fine like to pick your fruit and you're picking well before the end of the growing season. Right. right? <clears throat> so the conditions usually aren't all that threatening in in most cases. And uh, for us, that's just not the the case. Um, even with Pinot Noir, unless it's a really hot vintage. We're hanging fruit, you know, till the kind of the end. And we're always right on the cusp of, is it going to start raining and never stop, right? And so we're always pushing the season to the maximum, which is part of what makes the region so exciting um, because we are we are embracing the cold climate amelioration theory to the max, right? right? And so in the case of Chenin Blanc, what you have is you have this grape variety that's a chameleon. And so it it... If you're okay, as long as, and this goes back to the conversation that we had just with a couple, a couple questions prior, which is, if you're going to think about a grape variety that you're going to plant, make sure that you check yourself at the door and be objective about what you're growing because you need to understand, are you making something you want to make or are you going to grow the grape and let it be what it's going to be? And in the case of Chenin Blanc, if you're okay with it in some vintages being sparkling wine, and in some vintages being a beautiful off-dry botrytized mulu, and in some vintages when it's warm and dry, it's this beautiful bone-dry full-body South African style. Like, If you're cool with just adapting each vintage to what you think that ingredient is going to make the most beautiful like thing possible, that's the pursuit. Like That's noble. Like To me, that's super noble. And that, that for me... Um, that for me is more important than making a consistent wine from vintage to vintage. Right. Especially for wine enthusiasts, wine advocates. So with Chenin Blanc, you can do kind of whatever you need to do. And so it's a smart grape variety because it has so much flexibility <clears throat> and it makes a great wine across this really broad range. Yeah. Um, and we're oftentimes threatened by botrytis and things at the end of the season. So if you're open to that, I think it's a great grape variety to, uh, to you know, to hedge your bets on. And Yeah. Yeah. And 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 then other people are following suit. You think that it's going to be uh, one of the the next kind of hot gr- varieties from from. Uh, it's, it blows my mind that just in in the world of wine, Chenin Blanc is not more widely drunk and enjoyed because it's just delicious. And and your your example just 
fits that category of, you know, expressive fruit, you know, an interesting spice and ginger and all those really uh, fun characteristics and, and also ageability, right? Yeah, Chenin Blanc uh, in the United States is, <clears throat> uh, to my knowledge, has just failed. Yeah. Um, you know, m- most of it a long time ago was planted for production, right? And uh, planted in very fertile soils and places like, you know, Lodi and, you know, the, the, the Delta, uh, for example, in California. And in Washington, it's just too warm. I mean, it's just yeah. where, where grapes are grown. So, like, we've just never really... To my knowledge, nobody has ever actually attempted to plant Shannon in a region extreme enough that would be somewhat comparable to the Loire. Yeah. And so these plantings that, that I have, for example, and a few other people now have in the Willamette Valley are the closest thing that I can think of or that I know of um, that would push that similar sort of nerviness yeah. and push the end of the season in an extreme way. So when I, when I think about Shannon Blanc, I think that <clears throat> there's been very – not just in the United States, but there have been very, very few real intentful attempts to make world-class Chenin Blanc. And South Africa would be the most established region for world-class Chenin Blanc outside of Savignier. And what the hell do those two places have in common? Like, I've not been to South Africa, but what I know about it and tasting the wines, nothing. Yeah. Like, I mean, they're totally different places, but the grape variety is extraordinary in both places. And so... It also goes back to the discussion of you don't want to make Chenin Blanc in the Willamette Valley so that it tastes like Sauvignon so that I can blind taste some master sommelier on it and fool them and go, pretty cool, right? Tastes just like the real thing. Yeah. No, fuck that. Like, right. go buy Sauvignon. <laughs> this is organ Chenin, and I'm trying to figure out what that is. So there's no new – like, for me, there's no honor in that. Like, there's no honor in making something that tastes like the real thing. Mimicry is what we do as children to learn how to do something. And when you learn how to do that, then you, then you move on and you, you know what I mean? And you, you create your own thing and you carve your own path and you make something that is distinctly from your region and, and, and is balanced and acid and is balanced and all these things. And you build a following as that being a benchmark, but in a different way. And so you're adding something to the, to the contribution of worldwide, like wine that's interesting. And, and to me, the word that comes to mind is maturity. I mean, and, and that's what you're describing is that, that um, you know, a, a wine region that is mature and has, uh, is, is doing just that. They're not trying to mimic something else, but they're, they're, they're comfortable in what they're doing. And I think that that's a really noble cause. We don't talk about that enough, I think. And that's what Oregon Pinot Noir has been until recently. Yeah. And Oregon Pinot Noir is now like, no, no, you know what? We are strong enough now. Yeah, we're and not so, Burgundy. No, so that discussion about Burgundy doesn't happen nearly as much as it did 12 years ago when I moved there. That was like what everybody was talking about. And now even the Burgundians who are there making Pinot Noir, their wines don't taste anything like Burgundy, but they already know. Like they know, right? right? For them culturally, it's like this is a different place. Yeah. And so they, they themselves are sort of struggling to kind of figure out like, well, what is – what is Oregon Pinot Noir with my hand and my farming? And so even there, it's very clear that, th- that they're not trying to go down the Burgundian um, style. They're, they're just trying to make balanced, beautiful Oregon Pinot Noir. And so we've, we've established a maturity on that. You know, we crush it worldwide with Pinot Noir. Someday we might do that with other things. Chenin Blanc might be one of them. And so in the beginning, it's really important to have those points of reference, right? To yeah. drink Chenin from Savignier and to drink Chenin from Anjou and to drink Chenin from... Swartland yeah. and South Africa, right? Absolutely. And things like that. So you have perspective because you need, you need that to have something to work off. You need a point of reference, you know? Um, but over time, the goal is never to make that. It's to understand those things and then to figure out how to, you know, now make a local version or whatever that is beautiful. Yeah. Um, Let's, I'd like you to have uh, say a few words on Gruner Veltliner because Gruner is another variety that is really needs that marginal climate found in Austria. Um, you're pretty jazzed about about the variety, right? Yes, I am. Gruner Veltliner is actually one of my favorite grape varieties of of everything uh, worldwide, and not just for like in Oregon, but um, it is one of the other most successful grape varieties I've found to be planted in the Willamette Valley, which is interesting because. By the time we get to the third one, it'll also be a white grape variety, and you'll start to sense a theme that white wines might be better than red wines from the Lemon Valley. Um, <clears throat> and so what's cool about Grunewald Liener for me is um, 
It's noble. It has the ability to express different soil types, which is critical if you're going to make world-class wine. And I grow currently grow it on granitic-based soils. I grow it on sedimentary sandstone soils and also on basalt. And they're incredibly different wines. And so what we know now, in a very just in a very short period of time, is that the grape variety can express itself in really dramatic, outstanding ways in the Willamette Valley. So that's good. That's step kind of step number one to to like really getting to understand if you're going to make great wine or just good wine. Um, Gruner Veltliner for me, I love because I don't like particularly fruity wines usually, and Gruner Veltliner has this unabashed character that it just wears on its sleeve, which is this white pepper, oregano, intense herbaceousness. It just crushes some of the most crazy, hard-to-pair vegetable dishes and things like that, and um, and it just has it just has this it just has this characteristic basically that it just can't hide, and so you're either into it or you aren't. <clears throat> So it has it. It fits in you know really interesting food categories and and places where other wines just don't fit. In the grape varieties makeup itself, um, it's not a particularly acidic grape, at least not in in the United States and not in Oregon. It has enough acid, but for me, it's more of a phenolic grape. Mm. And so what I mean by that is it's more about its tannin structure, and it's incredibly thick skinned. It's as tannic as any, just about any red grape variety I can think I've ever worked with, right? Wow. I mean, it can, if you skin macerate and ferment Grunewald Leaner, it can be just as tannic as Cabernet Sauvignon. I mean, it's just, it's really pretty crazy. So what we do in the Willamette Valley is we've found, I have found a way, and a few other people that I work with at Grow Gruner, we've kind of found a way to integrate that tannin structure into the white wines, which makes this chalky, kind of slightly grippy white, but with really full body, like lots of texture. And good levels of acidity, but the acid and the tannins are playing off each other in a way to create this tension in the wine that is that's really beautiful and like really serious and very um, very intense. So the wines that I've found to be successful in the Willamette not only is the variety on display and very obvious, which is great. It's a different combination. And so when I pour my Gruner Veltliner for people who are used to or accustomed to drinking really great Gruner Veltliner from Austria, they see how it's less acidic, but they see how the wine is just as structured and if, if anything, potentially as pow- more powerful than a lot of what you would find out of Austria. So, and in talking to some of the producers that I have had a chance to meet in Austria, um, Gruner Veltliner outages Riesling for the most part. And a lot of people are caught off guard by that because we think about acid being what makes white wine age, and it's not the case. And it's the same discussion, in my opinion, as Chenin Blanc and Sauvignon and in, uh, and in Mont-Louis, for example, where you have a lot of botrytis. And what happens is in those Chenins, you have a lot of tannin with the acid. And in uh, Grunewald Liner, you have a combination of high tannin and high acid. And even though the variety is less acidic in Austria compared to Riesling, the Gruners outage the Rieslings. And my understanding is it's because of that tannin that structure. Phenolic, yeah. Exactly. And the phenolics that are there help to really build that wine for the long haul. And so what we do in Oregon is we just make our wines even more, even more phenolic, um, at least on the sites that I have. And it's not to say that there wouldn't be a vineyard site where we found just the perfect combination to where the acid is incredibly high yeah. and we have also full ripeness and in a smarag or fetterspiel at least level right. of ripeness. Uh, I haven't f- totally found that yet, but it's, I don't think it's necessary. And what I've seen, I'm incredibly happy with. So yeah, far. that's awesome. And then you've done experiments with uh, skin maceration and, uh, and played with that. Um, do you feel like you have kind of found the way that you want to treat it in the winery or are you, you know, still evolving with it? My evolution at this point has more to do with individual vineyard site yeah. and trying to adjust the winemaking a little bit, whether it's just the type of barrel or how long we age, right. for example, or the timing of picking, things like that, to where I'm trying to optimize what the vineyard is giving. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm learning the nuance. Um, but the method is pretty well, pretty well dialed in. Um, so with Grunewald Liener, I like to whole cluster macerate, um, which is kind of an old, sort of the old school way. Yeah. Like I would equate to if I was currently running the domain, if I was running a, a you know a winery in Austria, I would say that this is probably how my grandfather would have done things. Right. Which which would mean essentially that the fruit would be macerated in some degree, and it could have been in a really old press that just took for 
forever right. to get the juice out. So you're just grinding the shit out of the fruit right. and you're getting all the phenolics. Or it could be from something more modern where you have more modern equipment, but the winemaker or whatever is actually crushing the grapes and then allowing it to soak before they press. I mean, there's different kind of different ways. Um, I have a very efficient press. Yeah. Uh, it's German built. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, amazing, amazing engineering. Gets all my juice out in like 10 seconds. And so I'm like, God damn it. So what I have to do is I have to find a way to macerate. And so I myself in vintages, which are warmer, which basically has been five vintages now. Yeah. Wait, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Six vintages, excuse me. Since bad, 2012. Excuse my bad math, yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that the riper the Gruner Veltliner is, the more maceration it needs because it needs more tannin. And the less ripe, uh, the more you want to build it on acid because when it's underripe, if you macerate it, it's too green. I mean, the wine can literally come out tasting like vegetable stock, which is I love but is uh, a little bit esoteric. Right. Um, and so what we do is we whole cluster uh, sort and then we take the best clusters and we leave them whole cluster and we foot tread them. And the soaking will be anywhere between two days to five days before we actually press. Uh, we don't want to ferment on the skins. We just want to get the soaking. And what that does and the reason why we leave the stems in is because a lot of the stems for me contain a lot of the white pepper and oregano quality. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed this in 2014, which is the first year I, I was destemming. I was still destemming my fruit in 14. And that's when I switched because I was destemming in the winery. And I had to step outside the winery to do something. I was handling some other thing. I can't remember what it was. And my team was working with the fruit. And I walked into the winery probably after a half an hour of processing. And the entire winery just stunk of black pepper and white pepper. And, like, it was beautiful. And I was all excited and happy. I walk over to the fermenter. I'm looking at the berries. I'm tasting the juice. It smells like nothing. Tastes like nothing. And it was so bizarre, but I could smell it. It was in the air. It was everywhere. And it was just coming out of my distemmer. And so I'm looking at all these stems in the bin, and I just grab these <laughs> giant handfuls of these clusters and just smash them in my face. And I'm just smelling this stuff. And I'm like, holy shit, it's in the stems. Like, so, you know, 2011 was my first year. So three vintages. So in the fourth vintage, I realized, okay, I realized the power of the stems. And, you know, there are other great varieties where this is important too, but in Grunewald Liener, I felt like this is where a lot of that's coming from. And so how do I now intentionally do, you know, like kind of bring that out in a really good way. And so we've been doing over the last four years now, different levels of whole cluster and different kinds of macerations and things. And we're trying to figure it out. So we're making those like little nuanced tweaks, but for the most part, whole cluster maceration for me is really essential. And, and that's not just for Gruner, <laughs> but for, for almost all varieties, as you're saying. Uh, not for, no, not for, no, 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 please don't, please don't misunderstand okay. me. What I mean is that the stem is really important in certain varieties and not yeah. in others. Um, and I think that in the case of Grunewald Liener, stems are very important. Right. Uh, and I believe also Pinot Noir, uh, to be the case that stems are also important. Yeah. And, um, and you have to understand how to use them when they're appropriate. You have to have good technique to be able to extract that right. In right. a good way. And, um, and that takes years and years and years of, uh, yeah, and that's a very hotly Still. debated topic with Pinot Noir, you sure. know, full, whole cluster or uh, destemming, et cetera. Um, what, uh, there's still just so much more to talk about, but, um, you know, what, um, you, you mentioned a third variety that you were excited about, right? Uh, n not to bring us too far back. Was that, was that right? That we missed? Do you have a third in your, in your, in your pocket? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are a number of white grape varieties for sure that I think are really incredible. I'm just kind of splitting hairs on the third. For me right now, based on what I've, what I have actually done and what I've aged and what I've seen, um, I would say that the, um, the third variety that I'm the most excited about actually is Kerner. Interesting. And Kerner, I think I want to touch on one other thing real fast about Kerner, which is that I believe that, um, and I'm not the only one, and this, and I didn't discover this on my own. Somebody pointed this out to me who's much smarter than I am. Um, the Willamette Valley is potentially more like the Alps. And so everything around, you know, everything Switzerland, obviously, but Eastern France and Northern Italy, right? And yeah. Slovenia and Germany and Austria. And I mean, like there's a huge number of grape varieties that grow in all those countries and everything bordering Switzerland for the most part. There's a strong belief uh, amongst myself and, and a, a contingent of other winemakers that, that the Willamette Valley is more like the Alps. <clears throat> 
And even though we grow great Pinot Noir, for sure, it's very different than continental Burgundy on limestone and, and you, know, the, you know, different weather patterns and things. And so we're looking through those regions of Europe that have great varieties that might be conducive to grow in the Willamette Valley, Kerner being one of them. And Kerner is very obscure. I mean, even in Europe, there's very little of it available. It comes from, you know, Alto Adige, for example, uh, as, one, as one region. And the Kerner that I've seen that we've grown has been really, really exciting. So is it, is it as grand of a story as, as some Grand Cru vineyard in Burgundy or growing Nebbiolo from, you know, some amazing vineyard in Valtellina? No, like Kerner is definitely more obscure. It's also an example of like a great variety where you have to determine whether or not you want to champion something when, you know, Abbazia de Novacella, which is probably the most well-known Kerner imported in the United States, is $20 retail. And I can't afford to make a $20 retail wine in Oregon, right. period. Yeah. Not, on, not the way I do things. Sure. It's too expensive. But the grape variety, like if I'm going to take all things out of, out of, out of um, the equation, I just punched the mic. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's fantastic. Um, it's such a cool grape variety. And I think that one of the things that we need to consider is the economics so one of the cool things about Kerner that I've seen in a number of other varieties, more in the reds actually than in the whites, some of the whites, but for sure in reds, which is really kind of a shift in conversation, which is um, the cost of farming grape varieties. One of the reasons why Oregon Pinot Noir is very expensive is because, you know, Pinot Noir is tough to grow. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's also a tough wine to make. So it's very expensive to make the wines. But for the most part, the cost of making wine largely backs up to the cost of growing the fruit. And the cost of the land. And so if you can find a grape variety that makes really great wine that is more productive per square uh, foot of land, um, then you have a completely different business model sure. and something that would allow you to enter the market in a different way that we still don't fully understand or realize in the Lemon Valley of what's potential. So with Kerner, you have this uh, fairly healthy yielding grape variety that is uh, resilient and resistant largely to a lot of the things that we struggle with, like powdery mildew and botrytis, um, and ripens consistently, ripens fairly early, so it's very reliable. <clears throat> and it makes a great variety, it makes a wine basically that is, uh, that is not competitive on the market. And what I mean by that is there's, you're not up against a, a really, really healthy import program right. of these wines. So the the knowledge of this grape variety, the challenges that might come from um, championing a different grape where there's a lot of it available at cheaper prices, and especially with a grape variety that is really well known by the general public, you don't have to overcome that. What you have to overcome is just introducing people to Kerner. And when they like Kerner, you know, if, you're, if you tell them, look, this is incredible and here's the price. Right. Right, if that's what it costs you to make it, and the wine is worth it, there is no perspective of what that costs from Alto Adige because the wines are so rare. You know, there's no point of reference, and so that can open up the possibility of well, if you're just willing to put in the effort to educate people yeah. and to empower them with the knowledge of what this is, um, then it's possible that in the United States we could actually take something that's seemingly very obscure, flip the conversation completely on its head, where everybody's like. Who's going to sell a $20 Kerner from the Willamette Valley? It's like, well, I am, and I'm going to charge 30 because right. I'm going to macerate it, and it's going to be fucking killer, right? And I'm going to do all this fun stuff with it, and the wine's going to over-deliver. And people don't know Kerner, and I'm going to take it upon myself to bring that knowledge to to Americans yeah. and, and people, you know. So. Well, that's cool. I mean, and and that that we have seen that to a certain extent, uh, like Verdelio in, in in Australia, or you know some other uh, areas of the New World that that have kind of done some of these things. But well, like that that interesting BK wine that you were talking about. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Which is Sauvignon, which uh, and aged under Flor. Um, we do need to talk about that because I want your impressions on that. Um, if if you're listening out there and you don't under, don't know what Flor is, that in some regions particularly in sherry, you have this layer of yeast that, that forms in the barrel. Um, it also forms with, uh, in, in some areas of Spain, uh, northern Spain, uh, on the reds, actually, Bierzo, you, you see
see it uh, with Mencia, um, and and that's pretty interesting. Uh, and of course, it's famous f- um, for the Vengeance uh, in um, in 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 France. And so you 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 have had a little bit of success with this, right? Yeah, I have, and I don't know how. Um, I don't know how successful it would be across the entire Willamette Valley. I, like yeah. you know, I, mean? I like I suspect that there's probably pockets where humidity and certain you know certain parameters will exist. Um, for me, where I've seen it, I've only seen it successful essentially in the Eola Hills yeah. and in the Van Duzer Salt Creek area, where we're incredibly close to the ocean. And in most regions where I have seen floor develop, we are almost always talking about something, a region that is very, very closely related to a body of water, uh, oftentimes the ocean. And so I suspect that there might be something there that is, that is allowing it to be, uh, that is allowing it to thrive quite a bit more. In Jura, you're not near water. Um, you're near, I don't know what it could be that's causing it. Maybe it's the Alps and snow melt and things that are creating, that create a certain barometric pressure and humidity or, you know, I don't know. Uh, I'm not a, a master on this particularly, but I have at least attempted it. And I was successful, luckily, a couple of different times. Um, the first one that I bottled was called flower. So floor means flower. And uh, whenever I bottle something for minimus uh, in particular, I always use English because I'm an American and I don't even speak French. And it drives me crazy when American wineries uh, name their wines with like French names and they have no French heritage. Yeah. Just I want to pull my hair out. So anyway, that's a different discussion. But so basically floor yeast, I think, can thrive in certain parts of the Willamette Valley. We've seen it uh, thrive in the Eola Hills in particular, which makes sense because it's heavily influenced by the Venduzer Corridor where yeah. the coastal range essentially of the West Coast dips down to sea level and allows the ocean to move in uh, where it cools down the rest of the Willamette Valley. But you have the blunt of that weather Right, and that system essentially localized in the Van Duzer area and in the Old Hills. So I found a winery that was established in the late 1970s. A good friend of mine was working at this winery, and they had floor cultures growing on a lot of their wines, and they were not trying to do that. They, they weren't trying to develop that intentionally, but they were battling it, and they were trying to, um, trying to eradicate it, actually, from the winery, and they just couldn't. And so it was so established there <clears throat> that... Um, I thought that this could be an interesting place to potentially try to develop a culture, or maybe if I can find a way to isolate their culture, I might be able to integrate that into one of my wines, essentially, to try to uh, induce that to happen. Because my understanding, uh, and a microbiologist would do a much better job chiming in on this, uh, is that um, the Saccharomyces that is responsible for developing the floor layer it's really critical that it be involved actually in the juice stage and in the actual primary fermentation process of the wine, not just fermenting a wine and then putting it in barrels and not topping it and just crossing your fingers and thinking it's just going to grow. I think that might be possible. I can't answer that question, but from what I understood from research and from talking to winemakers in regions where this occurs, it's existing. And in many cases, the cellars themselves where these wines are made are just saturated right with this type of Saccharomyces in a heavy way and are probably having this ferment or be a part of their fermentation of the base wine, which then if you reach certain chemical parameters like alcohol tolerance, like you need to be within a certain alcohol range in order for the buoyancy to exist, for it to float. So if there are certain parameters within the wine, the final wine that you need to achieve that will create the environment essentially for it to thrive. So if it's there in the fermentation process and you target a certain alcohol level and pH level, then you would have a successful environment. So by isolating this culture, I was able to introduce it to juice in my winery at the time uh, to make sure that the culture would be there in a strong way. And then I picked fruit based on parameters of trying to achieve a certain alcohol content naturally so right. I wouldn't have to fortify or do anything. Right. And, um, and I was lucky enough for it to grow and develop. And what I saw in the winery where I was aging it, because this, this predates me building my own winery in Carleton, uh, I was working and making this wine at a, a very famous, in my opinion, the most famous vineyard in the Willamette Valley called Johan, which is in the Van Duzer Corridor. Uh, it's one of the closest vineyards to the ocean that we have. And I was at that time uh, working with a lot of their food, and I was making wine in their facility when I before I could really get started. And so I was aging my barrels in this in this cellar. And um, 
And what would happen was the, the, we got through primary fermentation basically in the winter and in the early part of winter, the, uh, floor yeast started to develop in the following season. And in the summertime, the floor yeast would oftentimes fall. It wouldn't actually stay like in the really hot, hot, hot parts of the month. So sometimes in July and August, I'd have nothing protecting the wine at all. And then when rain and things would start coming in again in September, October or whatever, we would start to develop this layer again. And we would have this really strong layer developed through the winter. And so it was kind of like it wasn't constantly protected, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And then uh, after it was not quite four years, basically, uh, we achieved a, a, a flavor profile essentially in the wine that I really, really loved. And I felt from for me, from my perspective, I could have pushed it further. Mm-hmm. But I had to make a decision on, you know, okay, this is the first time anybody's ever done this that I know of in the Willamette Valley. So be the first ever to be bottled successfully of this style. What's the most important thing for me to capture? Do I keep pushing this and be more and more extreme? Or do I go ahead and bottle this now so that it can be on display for all of my peers and everybody else to drink that wants to understand whether or not this can be done and what that might taste like? And so I chose to do that. And so I, I bottled it kind of on the earlier end, just shy of four years. But the wine still has a bunch of fruit, even now, you know, and when you taste it in wine, it's still quite youthful. Yeah. And I didn't want to push it to the kind of extreme Van Jones side of things, which is extraordinary. Uh, I wanted to still have some fruit and a little bit of youthfulness to it just because I, I thought that the wine would be a little bit more uh, relatable or pe- like, you know, people would be a little bit more open to it. And yeah. I just wanted to try to encourage other wineries in my area to also try and experiment with that style. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. Well, we've got just a few more minutes left and, uh, and this has been an amazing hour here with Chad Stock, um, from Minimus Origin and Omero. Any, any final thoughts, comments that you want to get out there? Um, it might be interesting to kind of give us a rundown of your various labels, uh, a, a sure. real quick couple minute, um, just how you organize it, uh, your vast number of different wines. So I started Minimus uh, in 2011, and I was on my own. Uh, I was doing everything myself, and uh, I had a few friends that would help me for sure on things when I needed. But uh, but it was really tiny, and I never actually intended for it to become a business. It was a necessity for me to be able to work on the side so that I could do my work for other people that I needed to during the day, and I would take it upon myself essentially to invest in my own learning to accelerate that curve. And so I started the experimental wines, uh, which are called the Numerical Series, which are my most, I think, well-known, recognized wines. Um, and it just sort of snowballed each year into bigger, bigger things as the recognition of the wine started to grow and opportunities uh, opened up to me. After the first few years, I started to have people um, ask me more and more, what does minimus mean? And I kept having these conversations about uh, the processing of wine and how there's literally the equivalent of a hungry frozen man TV dinner versus, you know, a thoughtfully prepared meal from a chef with fresh ingredients or just at your home or whatever. It doesn't have to be a chef, but, but that exists, right? This isn't an alcoholic beverage. This is an agricultural product that's just like broccoli and we consume it and you should know what's in your wine. And so I had this opportunity to um, basically start a new line of wines that we call Omero, which um, we put the ingredients on the front of every single bottle. And the reason why we do that is because we want to have a discussion about this And if we're going to have a discussion about the ingredients in wine, I wanted it to be friendly. Uh, So we're using grape varieties that are known to the region of the Oregon, right? They're Willamette Valley based. And so we're working with Pinot Noir, Gamay, Chardonnay, uh, and Pinot Gris specifically. And so these are grape varieties that people recognize. And the wines are much less expensive than the Minimus wines. And that allows for a larger audience of people to buy them. And the hope is that one in every hundred people or whatever will actually look at the front label and read it and go, oh my God, I've never seen ingredients on a bottle of wine before. Why don't I see this more often? And it's the idea of going back to the terroir concept that came up very briefly earlier, which is we should try to break these bigger concepts down into smaller components and talk about them like one by one because it'll make it, I think, much easier for everybody who, you know, in the various levels of knowledge to be able to participate in the conversation. And so I basically had too much that I wanted to fit in Minimus. And so I realized that if I was going to come up with an ingredient label sort of line of wines, that I felt like I should build build a completely different brand around that, right? So we consider those to be the Willamette Valley kind of classic wines. um, And the message being 
let's make these wines affordable so that we can show people that you don't have to use a bunch of processing ingredients to make affordable wine for people to drink on a daily basis. So Minimus continues to be the, uh, the R&D. That's how we talk about it. Alternative grape varieties and styles, uh, uncommon to the region. And then we have Origin. And Origin basically is my like gold capsule version of wine. It's a designation label. So each year we choose up to three at most of what we think are the best wines from the Minimus program and bottle them with the Origin label. And we're looking for the wines that are the most age-worthy, the most structured, the most uh, what we would say to be uh, long-haul and sort of quality kind of premium wines um, that we hope people will collect in age. And um, in order for us to do that, we really have to bottle different wines each year. And the reason why is because if we're making wines without additives and we're farming organic in a marginal climate, we don't know what our best wine is going to be. And instead of making a reserve wine for whatever that's worth, which usually means an oak monster blend of some something, or just our most expensive wine every single year being some single vineyard, and regardless of whether it's a good vintage or bad vintage, it's always expensive, I don't. I hate that concept. Like, I want all of my wines to over deliver at the price points that they're at, and whether it's a hundred hundred dollars a bottle or twenty dollars a bottle, I want people to feel like that was a hundred dollar bottle of wine. Like, wow, you know what I mean? And so, I'm more adamant about declassifying, you know, high end vineyards down into my cheaper wines if that's what it has to be, and upgrading things if that's what it has to be. But I want to be able to have a way to be able to highlight for the people who follow my work the wines that I feel like I'm the most proud of from each vintage. Yeah. And so as I hopefully continue to be able to do this for a living, right, and hopefully build recognition for the work that I'm doing and for my region, that people will know that when they see a bottle of Origin, they will, they'll know that, that that's my best work. Yeah. Well, we will continue to follow your work here on Another Bottle Down and, uh, and, and root for you for sure. I think Austin is going to be a good place uh, for your wines as well and, and, Tex- and the greater Texas. So thank you for coming into the co-op studios. Chad Stock with uh, the Craft Wine Company. You can find more information at craftwineco.com. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah.